Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would draw our attention this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the first 11 verses. I'm thankful for the Word of God this morning. Because without the Word of God, I wouldn't have anything to say. (laughs) This would be a really short sermon. I'm thankful that there have been people throughout the centuries who have thought it important enough for us to have the Bible and have the Bible in our own language that we can read that they even gave their lives for it. I pray that's how we treasure God's Word. So would you stand with me as we read the first 11 verses of chapter 2 in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. After I read those 11 verses, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we're truly thankful. If you're not thankful, don't say it. But if you are thankful, then say it like you mean it. This is the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful truths out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And satisfy us this morning 
with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When you take a step back for a moment from life and you think about how far our world has come, you think about all of the advancements that have been made, all of the progress that's been made in our world throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, the things now that we have at our fingertips that would have been amazing to people even just a hundred years ago. Think about how far it is that we have come. All that we have produced, all that we have made. We like to think of ourselves as progressed people, that we, we know something now. We're the, we're the modern people. We don't live back in those days when they didn't have the advantages that we have, we have progressed. We've gotten somewhere. We've, we've made something of ourselves. But listen to one author's observation. Just by the title of his book, listen to his observation when he wrote this book and entitled it, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. I think that's an accurate observation. Now, I've not read that book. I don't endorse that book. But I think it is an interesting observation to think about. That if we've gotten so far in our world, if we have advanced so much, if we've progressed, why is it that people still feel so bad? And in fact, people might even feel worse. Maybe it's an observation that's not too far off of the mark from what Solomon observed in the book of Ecclesiastes. And maybe it's an observation that tells us more about the problem of man than it does about the progress that is happening in the world around us. That for all of the progress, for everywhere that we think we have accomplished something, man really hasn't gotten anywhere anywhere of any significance, any nearer to figuring out the meaning of life, and so finding satisfaction that our vacuous hearts so desperately long for that they might be filled. And it brings us to a particular question. Why do you make the choices that you make? In your life, you have a myriad of decisions set before you each day, each week, each month. Why do you make the decisions that you make? Why do you do what it is that you do? And as you think about how to answer that question in your own life, I want to help us think not even in the box of being American, how might Americans answer that question? But I want us to think even more, how would anybody answer that question? How would mankind in general answer that question of why they make the choices that they make? And I wonder if the answer that many people would make, not just Americans, but many people would say, I make the choices that I make because I want to be happy. Because I want to feel good. I want to feel pleasure. That's why I do what I do. The choices that I make in my life are done to provide the most comfort to me so that I feel the best that I can, as much as I can, in the life that I have to live. I want these choices to bring great pleasure to everything that I experience in my life. And it, it brings me to uh, this confession that was written uh, in England called the Westminster Catechism. 
There it has the very first question. It's a list of questions to help instruct and teach on the truths of God's Word. But the very first question is this. What is the chief end of man? I mean, isn't that the question to end all questions? What is the chief end of man? And they answer that question by saying the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But that's not the way that mankind generally answers that question, is it? That if we're truthful, we easily pervert the answer, and Solomon recognized it. Solomon said, I see how you easily pervert the answer to that question. How do we usually answer that question? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify himself and enjoy himself as much as he can in the life that he has to live. I mean, isn't that, if we're honest, we get down to the heart of it, isn't that what man really longs for? Make myself look good and enjoy myself. And if I've done those two things, many people think they've done it all. Many people think then they'd have it good. And that's what mankind struggles with because we know that it's, it's not good. We know that it doesn't satisfy. But that's what our sinful flesh, our sinful desire tells us. And that's where Solomon brings us to. He, he brings us to this point now where at the end of chapter 1, he said this, with much wisdom comes much vexation or grief. And with Increased knowledge comes what? Increased sorrow. It's not a very uplifting message, is it? (laughs) And then Solomon goes right where I think we probably all would go. Okay, if wisdom and knowledge make me grieved and vexed and sorrowful, well, where do I go? What do I do? I know I'll make myself feel good. I'll go for pleasure. And that's exactly where Solomon goes. He says, I did everything to make myself feel happy. I, needed, I did everything to make myself feel pleasure. I want to feel good about life. And in fact, we might think it, we don't care too much about all of the particulars about life as long as we feel pleasure. How many Excuses, justifications does man make for his behavior simply because it makes him feel good, simply because it brings him pleasure. Those excuses of, well, I know it wasn't right, but it made me feel good. It made me feel pleasure. How many people have done that in the name of getting pleasure? We desire to fill up our lives with more and more and more pleasure. Live it up. No holds bar. Full throttle living. And we tell ourselves, and the world tells us, if you get anything in this world, if there's anything in this life that you need to get, make sure that you get pleasure. That's not a modern problem. It's been a problem for man from the beginning. We pursue self indulgence. We are gluttons and we gorge ourselves on self-indulgent pleasures. At our core, we are hedonists, material hedonists, pursuing pleasures for ourselves at all costs, for the interest of ourselves. We are all about self-gratification. And we believe that we can make our own kingdom through this self-indulgence and somehow that that will unlock the meaning to life. This is why Solomon needs to come and tell us some important truths, some uncomfortable truths, some life-upending truths that will dig down into the deep core of who we are and why we do what we do. And so he gives us some warnings why engaging in self-indulgent pleasure is so dangerous. 
You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning. But number one, engaging in self-indulgent pleasure does not get you to what is good. Engaging in self-indulgent pleasure does not get you to what is good. Not many people like taking tests. In fact, I think my reaction, if I'm told I have to take a test, is probably the same as when I was younger in school. I don't want to take a test. I don't like that. We recoil at that idea of taking a test. But what if it is a pleasure test? Sign me up for that. We would fight over that, right? Who gets, to, who gets to take part of this test? Let me be a part of a pleasure test. If it's all about pleasure, count me in. I want to take that test. That's what Solomon does from the very beginning. I said in my heart, heart, let me test you with pleasure. Solomon is speaking to his inner man. He's speaking to that inner soul within himself. He's looking for something. And he says, maybe I can find what I'm looking for through pleasure. Maybe that's where I'll find the meaning of life. Maybe that's where I'll find the purpose for my life. I can find it through pleasure. And how many people have not thought of this just as a test, but actually have given their whole lives to it? I will give my life to pleasure. They do not care if they find out the answers. They do not care if they get anywhere. They just want to live it up and feel good, to feel pleasure while they live. The pleasure that Solomon is talking about here is this lighthearted approach to life. Everything is only pleasure and feeling happy all the time. And so, if you have to do something in life that doesn't lead to your pleasure, that doesn't lead to you feeling good, then you might as well just skip it. Pass on that. And he goes on to coax his heart. Do you hear Solomon coaxing his heart here? Enjoy yourself, heart. Enjoy yourself. Live it up. That is what pleasure is all about. It's about you finding enjoyment. Notice that there is this self-word focus. Behind this idea is Solomon saying, I'm going to enjoy myself to find out what is good. Enjoy yourself to find out what is good in this world where you are living. And in finding out what is good and Solomon wanting to find out what is good in this life, it actually brings us back to the very beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? Because this is what God said after he created everything in six days. And God, saw that he had, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31. And what happens after God makes that declaration? He rests. He rests from his creating work. Why? Because he's tired? Because he's worn himself out through creating the whole cosmos? He rests because that is the goal of creation. And God's resting refers to his full enjoyment of everything that he has made by the word of his power. God rests and takes pleasure in all that he has created. Notice this is first God creating, then God declaring that it is good, and then God taking pleasure in everything that he has created. And how for man and for the world, that is completely backwards to how often we operate. Instead of seeing pleasure and enjoyment as the result of what God has made and what God has declared to be good, we see pleasure as the ultimate thing in life. And so we try to find out what is good by finding pleasure. Pleasure becomes the God. And we twist and pervert and mutilate what is good so that we can feel pleasure. 
No one will ever get to what is good by starting with pleasure, by seeing pleasure as the only thing that is important in life, by seeing pleasure as the starting point and ending point in life. And we get a quick answer from Solomon, don't we here? He says, I'm going to test my heart with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I'm going to find out what is good. But then he gives us this answer. But behold, this also was vanity. You know where he's going. (laughs) You know where he's going with his argument here. This too was a mystery. This too, I could not get to the bottom of it to unravel the mysteries of life. It leaves him turned in on himself, more confused and more lost than, more lost than ever. And so what does he do? He pursues this thought that pleasure is vanity by saying, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? This might be what you're expecting from the book of Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, this is a downer. This is depressing. Solomon, do you have to be such a Debbie Downer? Laughter is mad and, uh, you know, what use is pleasure? Is Solomon saying I can't laugh? That I shouldn't laugh? What does the world tell us about laughter? Laughter is the best medicine. That laughter will heal your soul. That laughter will make you forget all your problems. That laughter will make your life lighthearted. And for some, that is what life is always about. It's always about laughing. And always laughing to numb the pain. Always laughing to escape the pain of life. Always laughing to try to take your mind off of the hurt, the problems, the heartache that you feel in your life. No, Solomon isn't saying that we shouldn't ever laugh, but he is attacking the frivolity of life. He realizes what he's already said in the book of Proverbs 14, 13, which is this. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. And the end of joy may be grief. Yet, how many people make a priority on laughter? I just want to laugh. Make me laugh. Get funny, preacher. Tell some jokes. And they spend all of their days looking for things that will make them laugh. They look for things on the internet that will make them laugh. They watch movies that they can recite line after line that will make them laugh. They listen to comedians that will make them laugh. But even look at the lives of the comedians who found no pleasure, who for all of the laughter that they have experienced and that they try to create are more depressed, disturbed, and alone. Laughter cannot be the best medicine because of the conclusion that Solomon comes to. If you live for the frivolity of laughter, it's madness. And there's no good use for pleasure. It's the paradox of hedonism. What is that paradox? The more you hunt for pleasure, what? The less you find. That's what we experience. That's what everyone experiences. So what does Solomon do? He goes from the comedy club across the street to the bar. If I can't find the meaning of life there, with laughter in the comedy club, I will go to the bar. And so he says, I tried to cheer my body with wine. If you can't laugh your way out of the answers of, of life, then maybe you can drink to the answers of life. Maybe you can even drink away the pain. Notice here he says, I, I tried to cheer my body with wine. And then he says this, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. I think what Solomon is doing here is he's giving us this spectrum of how it was that he consumed wine. So on one end of the spectrum, he consumed wine as a wine connoisseur. He tasted it. He sipped it. And he didn't get drunk. It says that he still had his wits about him, right? My heart still guiding me with wisdom. I tried that. I tried to be a wine connoisseur. But then, what does he say? And how to lay hold of folly. And then I went to the other end of the spectrum, and I tried that, and I got smashed, and I got hammered. I tried it all. 
And guess what alcohol did for him? Did nothing. If he approached it in a cultured and refined way, it did not take away the pain of life. If he approached it like a frat boy with his drinking parties, it did not do anything for him. In the end, it could not help him get any closer to the answers of life. It did not and could not take away the mystery of life. And it's here that we see these words, you see them here, mad or madness and folly. Take note of those two words because Solomon is going to come back to these words, madness and folly, time and time and time again. And there's one thing that we must understand about these two words. Because when we read these words, madness and folly, our minds might go to mental deficiency. That there's a mental problem, right? If you have madness and you have folly, well, there's something wrong with your mental state. That's not the way that Solomon is using these words. He's not saying if you're mad and you go after folly that you have a mental problem. What Solomon is saying is that if you are in madness and you are in folly, there is a moral problem. There's not a mental deficiency with you. There is a morality deficiency with you. And that is the heart of all man. We have a morality deficiency. That's the problem. And that's why seeking pleasure will never get you where you really need to go because all it will do is turn you in on yourself and your moral deficiency will not leave you. It will only, in fact, get greater. This is where we've gotten to and Solomon says, I did all of this so that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their fleeting life. I mean, this is, you only have a few days. Before you know it, your life is over. And what will you have to show for it? Will you have anything good? Will you have any truth? Self-indulgent pleasure will never get you back to what is good. It will never let you see what is good, really good for anyone to do. Self-indulgent pleasure keeps us blind to what is really good and it keeps us like Eve in the garden where that serpent came to her and whispered to her and said, is God really good? And she believed the lie. And said, no, God is not good. God doesn't really have my best interest in life. There must be something better. Let me take and eat and indulge. And the problem was she took and she ate and she died. And that is our problem. Do you believe that God is good? And do you believe that he has your best interest in mind, Or would you like to say, no, I think that I know what is good. I think I know what is best and I can find that out by just feeding my pleasures. It's the warning that we need to hear this morning. You can feed yourself till you're fat, but you will never have found what is good. Number two, engaging in self-indulgent pleasure does not make you God. Indulge, uh, engaging in self-indulgent pleasure does not make you God. Have you ever been envious of someone else's life? Have you ever looked at someone else's life and thought, if I could just have that life, then I would be living the good life. Then I would be content then I would know what it means to really live. Take a look here, verses 4 through 8. Take a look at Solomon's life. This is what Solomon's life was like. Looking at what Solomon had, one could easily say, Solomon had it all. He controlled the largest region of land out of any of the kings of Israel. He was the richest 
king of Israel. You can read in 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10 and see all that Solomon had at his disposal, everything that Solomon had accomplished, everything that he did as king. And here we see Solomon's experiment. He was testing his heart with pleasure, and now, verses 4 through 8, we have the experiment. So Solomon begins to list out the pleasures. He lists out the many things that he did in order to bring himself pleasure. And how many of us might be jealous of Solomon's life? How many of us would have tried to emulate Solomon's life? How many of us have tried to emulate Solomon's life? He begins with this summary statement in verse 4, I made great works. That's the summary statement over everything else, and then he'll list out all of the great works, everything that he has done. So what does he say? How does he prove it? He built houses. He built his own magnificent palace. He built the temple of God. He built many other things, but if you just take a look at those two particular houses, those were magnificent, grandiose, architectural masterpieces that Solomon created. Solomon built. He also planted vineyards. He planted gardens. He planted parks. He planted fruit trees. He made pools of water which to water the sprouting trees. He bought male servants and female servants. He was over them and they increased and multiplied in his house. He had great possession of herds and flocks. He had more money than he knew what to do with. He had singers to sing before him all the time. He had many women at his disposal for his own sexual gratification. If we're to look at all of this, all, everything that Solomon had, we would say, had, we'd say, what didn't he have? He had it all. He had everything. He had filled up his life with stuff. He sought pleasure through material things, through great accomplishments, through using other people through great wealth and opulence, through fleshly desires. But why did he go through this list? Why is this list significant? It's significant because of how Solomon writes it. Here is what Solomon is doing. He's reminding us of another portion of Scripture. He's borrowing words and phrases from that section of Scripture and using them again here to make a point. So what is it that Solomon is drawing our minds to as he writes these words? He's drawing us back to creation. He's drawing us back to the Garden of Eden. He's drawing us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Here's how. Solomon says, He planted just like the Lord God planted Solomon had gardens, which is exactly what God had planted, a garden in Eden, Genesis 2.8. Solomon said a few times, I made, I made, I made, while God said that he had made things in Genesis 1, 7, 16, 25, 26 to 27, 31, 2, 3, and 4. Solomon planted all kinds of fruit trees in his gardens, just like God planted fruit trees in the Garden of Eden. You can see that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11, 12, 29, and chapter 2, 9, 16, and 17. Solomon built pools of water to cause trees to sprout, just as God watered the trees and caused them to sprout up. Genesis 2, 6, and 9 through 10. Solomon's treasuries were filled with gold and other precious things, while the land around Eden was filled with gold and other precious things, Genesis 2, 11 through, 10, 11 through 12. All of this done to draw our minds back to creation. And one other thing. After that summary statement of verse 4, I made great works, and then he delineates what those great works are, those are made in seven statements. I think seven particularly because he's referring back to creation. 
Why is Solomon drawing our attention back to the Garden of Eden? What is the point that he is trying to make? Look at everything that Solomon had done. Look at everything described about his life. He was trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. He was trying to make his own paradise. There was just one problem. This was all done without God, or even worse, it was done with the king of Israel foolishly trying to make himself God. It was all done with this self-focus. It was all done to exalt self, to glorify self. Every action taken by Solomon had at its very core this concern of self. Everything that he did, he did for himself, to bring pleasure to himself, to satisfy himself, to praise himself. It was not trying to live under God's rule as king. Rather, it was to usurp God's rule as king and try to make himself king above all. The one who had highest authority, who controlled everything and tried to be the master of his own domain. He was exercising rule and authority apart from God, not extending the rule and reign of God to the world and representing God as king to the world. He thought he could make his own Eden, his own paradise, his own place where there was no forbidden fruit. where he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and be whatever he wanted without having to give an answer to anyone. He thought somehow that would provide all the answers to life. Are we so foolish to think that this is not exactly what mankind does? This is exactly what we do. That even we today can fall into the same trap of trying to create our own Eden, our own paradise. That we can set out to accomplish much. Having built houses upon houses upon houses, filling our houses with more and more and more stuff, That we could go out and plant vineyards and plant gardens and plant parks and plant fruit trees and fill up the grounds around our houses with life. That from the ground, so green, so lush, so vibrant, so productive, that somehow that would show our greatness as if we had brought them to life. (laughs) As if we somehow were the ones sustaining them that we could try to control people and wield power and authority over them, that somehow we could take credit for their productiveness as if somehow we had caused them to be fruitful and multiply, that somehow we could take pleasure from their successes, that we could have great possessions, great wealth, great money, that would never run out. That we would have bank accounts that would never run dry. That if our silver could just be like the silver in Solomon's day that was so common. That we would have to tear down our old barns and build new barns just to put all of our money into. That we could have entertainment day and night, night and day, at our fingertips, 24-7. That amusement that would never have to stop. That we could and in fact amuse ourselves to death. That entertainment heaped upon entertainment, amusement heaped upon amusement, has left us to a completely malfunctioning heart that is so numb and that is so dead that you would just spend your days looking for the next entertainment high. That we could fill our lives up with sex. That Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and those concubines used for sex, for self-gratification, that this is another superlative that Solomon uses here. When he says, I had concubines, it was basically this, I had the harem of harems. 
I had so many women at my disposal, and not only a lot of women, but they were the most beautiful women. This was the most beautiful harem of harems that I possessed. And that today, you can go on the internet, and you can fill up your eyes and your heart and your mind with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sexually explicit images. More and more sex, and lust so much that you become a serial adulterer. That you have taken everything that God has given to be good and you've twisted it to your own perverse, sinful, and self-indulging ends. And I am not here today saying this to warn you, my friends. I'm not here to say, stay away from this, watch out for this. I am here to say, this is your life. At the heart, the very core of sinful man, this is what everyone is trying to do. Maybe you don't have the resources to do it on the scale that Solomon did it, but there are ways in which you have deceived yourself into thinking that you can be God. That you can create paradise for yourself. But what are you doing? You're making your life a living hell. What was Solomon doing? What has man been doing? What have you been doing? It's the very epitome of pride. Perhaps, perhaps that's what you need to hear this morning. Stop acting like God. Number three, self-indulgent pleasure does not offer what you long to gain. Engaging in self-indulgent pleasure does not offer what you long to gain. We then come to realize the result. There's been this test, there's been this experiment, and now the result, the recap, the reward, and the brutal realization. Solomon had become great, had surpassed everyone who was before him. There was no one greater, there was no one who had more prominence, there was no one who had more wisdom, no one who had more wealth in his day, no one who had done greater accomplishments than him. Solomon had it all, and he lived the life that so many long to live, a life without limits, a life without boundaries, a life that is unbridled, unrestrained, completely free. Solomon says that whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep that from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. That's the mantra of our world. It's what our world says. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. What's the result of that? But why are you still sad? And so, the dirtiest word in our minds can be the word repressed. Nobody wants to be repressed. Nobody wants to be held back. No one wants to be stifled, restrained, under control, told what to do, or held accountable for their actions. That's the worst thing in the world's mind that could ever happen to anybody. They experience being repressed especially if they're being repressed from the things that they love. But I love this. But I've given myself to this. Newsflash this morning. You do not always love what you were created to love. Just because you love something doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it good doesn't make it true. In fact, the Apostle John warns us of this in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, when he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, and the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, uh, yeah, excuse me, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
That's it right there, isn't it? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. That's what Solomon was trying to grasp. But those who grasp those those things don't have the love of the Father and don't love the Father. Solomon said that he did find pleasure in his toil. He calls it his reward. It's not denying that people, in all of their self-indulgence, will not find pleasure. They do find it. You will find it. But then there is this humbling realization. After you look at everything that you've done, after you look at all of the energy that you have expended in seeking pleasure, you've gained nothing. You've gained nothing in this fallen, cursed world. You've gotten nowhere. You are no closer to unraveling the mysteries of life. You can give yourself to indulging yourself in pleasure, but that is completely contrary to the reason why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came as one who left the glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship with the Father, who condescended to earth to be born as a baby in a dirty stable, who clothed himself with humanity and became like one of us. And what did Jesus, the perfect God-man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus is not the embodiment of self-indulgence. Jesus is the embodiment of self-denial. That is why he came. To seek and to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many so that they might be saved and so that they might be brought into perfect fellowship with the Father. He laid down his life. He died because of his love for others and he rose again from the dead as the truly victorious and conquering king that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Jesus clothed himself in humility to save us from our own sin and condemnation. It is this humble Savior that we put our faith in, that we believe in, that we submit to and are saved. And it is who everyone must put their faith in and believe in and submit to if they are to be saved. And it's then you know what you have gained. You've gained the Savior. You've gained life, you've gained forgiveness and an eternity and a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, a new paradise, one that you have not created, but one that Christ has made for you himself. And now, as those who follow Christ, we do what Christ calls us to do. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. I can deny myself because Jesus denied himself and his glory and died in my place on that cross to save me from my sin. So guess what? I don't have to live for myself anymore. I don't have to live to find pleasure in my own life. Because My Savior and my God has done everything, so that becomes my greatest treasure. Not myself. Not my own pleasure. Not what I think I deserve. I don't have to create my own paradise because Jesus has created my own paradise. And he creates it far better than I could ever create it for myself. He'll create it for you, far better than you could ever create it on your own. And so now, we can daily, as Christians, clothe ourselves with humility and now live for Him. Why? Listen to this. Titus chapter 2. 
for the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the life lived in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the life that is actually lived to the fullest. This is the life lived because Jesus Christ The very grace of God in bodily form came to earth. This is the life lived so that whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving glory to God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use your word in us today. We pray that you would have tugged at our heartstrings this morning, Lord, through your word. That there were truths that we maybe needed to hear this morning. Truths that we had been trying to avoid. Truths that we had been trying to escape but cannot escape because you have addressed them through your word this morning. So, Lord, I pray that we would have ears that would hear. Lord, I pray that there's anyone this morning here who would have been living their lives to engage in self-indulgent pleasure. That this morning they would feel the burden of that. The burden that it doesn't lead them to where they think it will lead them. It doesn't bring them to where they want it to bring them. The day they would even see how they have been running away from you. And that today they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe on Him, confess Him as Lord, and be saved. Lord, our lives are fleeting. They are few. Thank you that you've made a way for us to find hope in the midst of those fleeting days and to find rest in a Savior, the very grace of God who has appeared and taught us how to live for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.